When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Analyzing Anfield, your tactics and analytics podcast, KDC of the Blood Red channel. I'm Josh Williams and I'm joined by Mo Stewart. Mo, you have experienced a win on this podcast, mate. You are not yeah. the bad luck charm that we thought. I mean, I don't know if anyone really thought it, but I was worried <laughs> it was true. And we can now eliminate it. So yes, I'm happy. And like it's 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 looking it's still looking a little bit wobbly at times, but the reds are slowly rolling. And I mean, we can talk about how wobbly we look comparison to some of the others. We look relatively smooth. So yeah, we keep winning, and hopefully that will continue for the next three. Yeah, well, it's it is making things interesting for us. At least on the podcast, we have something to talk about, something to play for, which is nice. Uh, obviously, six wins in a row now, as you say, um, and as a result of that, we are putting pressure on on the top four, Manchester United and Newcastle, looking over the shoulders now. Um, what did you think of the Brentford game? I thought it was a, uh, it, it felt like a nervous game, didn't it? It felt like um, a game where we 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 could concede at any moment, really. But at the same time, if you do look back at the numbers, which I will touch on after you've spoke, it was quite a relatively straightforward win, really. It, it was. It was. It was a typical end of season game where things just all feel a little bit strange. But when you look back on it, like you say, with a bit of hindsight, it was actually relatively comfortable. I thought it was another game where we started really well, and then you could pinpoint the moment that our energy dropped and Brentford started to get back into the game. It didn't help the stop-start nature, thanks to the countless fouls. I mean. Liverpool allegedly managed 16 fouls in the first 65 minutes of that game. And I know because I checked at that point because I was thinking, this is ridiculous. How many fouls is he actually given against us? And it was 16. So that's always going to make it a little bit harder. But <laughs> the reality is, is that that also made it kind of like a training session because it was just us defending set pieces again and again and again and again. And I mean, they did it really well. This is... This is so you can look at it as a positive in all ways. It's a clean sheet. We were able to deal with a very threatening team at looking at one of our weaknesses, as it's been for quite some time. And it was another win, another three points, um, another goal for Mo Salah. Another, you can say another a lot, which means that it's the same as it was before. We're starting to get a little bit of reliability, dare I say, back. We're starting to be able to go into games knowing what to expect and largely seeing that. Yeah, as you say, I think it was a, a very, very interesting game in terms of the set-piece side of things in particular. I wrote a piece before before the uh, before the match on set-pieces and how they were going to be massive. We know Brentford play into that sort of stuff. And um, if there's one thing you probably don't want to do going into a game like that, it's, it's give away fouls, give away these set pieces. And as you say, we gave away a total in the game of, of 19. 
which is an absolute ton. For a bit of perspective, that is the most that Liverpool have given away in a Premier League game since 2015, uh, which is a long time. And it's the most that we've given away at Anfield since 2010, which is unbelievable, really, when you think about it. And it's a nightmare when it comes to playing Brentford. They were just masters of set pieces. So we were very heavily reliant on, on Van Dijk and Canate, who I, I do think, to be fair to them, stepped up when it comes to that sort of thing. Um, we did keep a clean sheet, which is good. But in terms of the actual performance, although Brentford did feel threatening throughout, and I, did, I know they scored a goal that was just marginally offside and things like that. But again, if you look at the expected goals, Liverpool posted 2.2 and we gave away shots worth about 0.2 from Brentford. So, you know, that's a solid expected goals win again. And that has been a consistent theme since we've adopted this 3-2-5 attacking shape, with the exception of the Spurs game, which was just totally nuts at the end (laughs) in in, in that game. Uh, We we posted 2.2 XG, which is good, but Spurs also posted 2. So that probably should have been a draw and very nearly was a draw up until uh, Diogo Jota's crazy moment at the end of the match. But yeah, Liverpool gen- genuinely looking better, like a more cohesive side. Mm. Um, looking like we're picking up deserved wins. And in this game, although it was packed full of set pieces, maybe the fact that we felt a little bit uneasy just stems from the season more than what we were actually watching because what we were watching was was a relatively safe and secure performance for the most part no you're right and i think that there's a few battle scars that we have to deal with and i think we've seen that from the players themselves talking about some of their reactions previously to going behind and the way that they were heads would drop we've seen them kind of fight their way out of that to some extent now. So we're able to come back in games like Spurs and Nottingham Forest when we face a setback. So that's good. And again, I feel like it's one of those things that every game starts to look a little bit better. People feel a little bit more comfortable in what they're being asked to do. Part of the um, low XG for Brentford, though, I do think it's down to them. And there was lots of times when they threatened up to a point and then the final ball which would have produced something which would register on the XG chart, was poor, and we were able to intercept. So they did slightly give us a bit of help, but I do think it was because our structure was better, and so they were having to work harder to try and generate chances. It wasn't just a case of them uh, waiting for us to do something stupid, as it had been previously in the season. So again, you can look at it and say it is a step forward, but in the moment, and particularly when you look at something like if you're only watching it on Match of the Day, for example, or highlights where they're going to accentuate that one chance that they scored that they didn't actually score, um, it's going to look a little bit more dicey than it was. But I do think from now on, like I say, every win that we get, even in difficult circumstances, it builds a little bit more confidence in them and hopefully for us watching as well. Yeah, well, one, one final point I want to make about the game just in reference to those files and things like that, was a, a stat that um, Dan Kennett posted after the game. Hell of a stat. Um, so in terms of the number of files that Liverpool conceded and the number of files Brentford gave away and how that impacted the match and things like that, have you seen how much time the ball was in play for in this game? 
Yeah, it was something ridiculous, like Amazing. like one of the lowest we've had in a long time, wasn't it? It's it's possibly the lowest I've ever seen, if if I'm honest. Um, so I think generally off the top of my head, you probably see around fifty-five minutes to an hour of in play time, and that is why there's some calls for a, a, a kind of sixty-minute game where the where they're clock stops when the ball's out of play essentially because you, you you would work out as getting a bit more football mm-hmm. time essentially in this game against Brentford the ball was in play for a total of 39 minutes and 55 seconds which is just the one half of football that that's unbelievable mate honestly I've, I don't I have not come across that I mean it's not the kind of stat that I regularly look for if I'm honest anyway but I've never seen the match that actually considers that much that actually realizes that much football like that's 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 it is a set piece game it's it's baseball mate <laughs> yeah and uh, it's weird because those are just the fouls then you got to factor in all of the throw-ins and then you got to factor in the substitutions yeah the goal kicks fake injuries and to be fair we were doing it as much as Brentford in this game because we had a lead to hold on to towards the end of the game but one more thing I want to point about about the fouls. Obviously, there's going to be some talk and has been some talk around the referee and the fact that a lot of them didn't look like fouls. It felt like everyone that could go either way went their way. And maybe that's just with our red tinted glasses on. One thing I would say, though, they worked that out, that the ref was giving every little thing quite early on. Probably would have been mentioned in the dressing room at halftime. So the message should have been... Don't give him the opportunity to give away silly free kicks. And we didn't. That's something we're going to have to get better at as we start to build better as a team. Yeah, well, in terms of how that has impacted the Premier League table, obviously, as you said earlier on, we we have a chance. You know, we're, we're one point behind Man United at the minute with Man United have a game in hand. And we are three points behind Newcastle, who also have a game in hand. Like, it still feels... Quite unrealistic. We do have a serious goal difference edge on Man United, which is good. Um, what are your thoughts? Is this? I know you're a positive optimist anyway, okay. Mo. So I'm, I'm I'm expecting good things here. But what are your thoughts if you if you was a Chelsea fan? <laughs> well, I mean, there's good and bad news. I think the good news is I do expect Liverpool to get the nine points they need to put the ultimate pressure on. I think yeah. it's going to be tough but against both Leicester and Villa in particular, but I think we're good enough and playing well enough to get those jobs done. That's when it gets tricky because you look at Newcastle and it's really hard to say that they're playing badly because they've lost, in their last 10 games, they've lost two and won eight. That's a lot. Yeah. That's, that's a team in good form. And they scored, I think, 20 goals in the last seven games. So that's a team scoring goals. Should be feeling good. But they've lost the ability to keep clean sheets. I think it's seven games they haven't had a clean sheet now. And that's going to be worrying. And that add that to the fact that these players haven't been in this position before. There's also the feeling that they're kind of playing with house money in as much as even if they finish fifth, they'll be disappointed, no doubt but they can look on the season as a success having got into Europe. So there's all these things that start to come into your mind when you're a team being chased down 
by a team like Liverpool, who we all know have done this before and can put the wins together. Man United, it's a little bit different because they should be more experienced in this situation, but they just look gassed. Like, we, we forget they were talking about quadruples not long ago. And I mean, yes, we laughed, but they are have been in all competitions deep and they have also been heavily reliant on about three or four players all season long. And it just so happened that most of them have either been injured or maybe had a little bit of wobbling form, with the exception of Rashford, who's been pretty consistent, to be honest. And that's even before you get to the guys who haven't been good, i.e. the goalkeeper. So for Manchester United, their position is clear. They only need three more wins. They've got four more games to do it. That should be the message. But again, do they have the ability, the belief within themselves at this point in the season when it's in the dregs and it's getting really hard? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's interesting, mate. Um, looking at the table now, I, I agree with you. I think Liverpool will win all of their main games based on what I've seen lately. So I think Liverpool will finish on 71 points and a goal difference of about plus 30 32-ish, potentially. Um, so if you look at that, Man United are currently on 63 points with four games left. So, essentially, if you're at Ten Hag, you have to win three games to guarantee fourth. And one of the frustrating things about Man United's current predicament is of their four remaining games, three of them are at home. Yeah. So, essentially, Man United... If they win all of their remaining home games, they get they get the top four, and we we don't have a say in that. In terms of Newcastle, um, again they they need two wins out of their remaining four, and they play a home twice, um, against Brighton, which is a tough game to be fair, and Leicester. So in a way, all Man United and Newcastle have to do is win their home games and and, and they because Newcastle if they win their home games it would take them to 71 points which is what Liverpool are probably going to end up with but I think Newcastle are going to end up with a better goal difference than Liverpool have currently got seven goals on us so they can probably finish on level points who doesn't still get top four so it's it's interesting really Um, we need a home slip up from, from Manchester United or Newcastle somewhere and then we've just got to hope that the away games throw a spanner in the works or something and we've also got to hope that the fact that Liverpool is just there it is enough to put pressure on the situation in some kind of way um, like I think recently on his podcast Callum Wilson's talked about it as in like Liverpool has just come out of nowhere almost and mm-hmm. he was he had his feet up thinking about Champions League next season now it's not so much of a guarantee so we do have a chance but it's not it's still not that much of a chance when you look at it. I mean, if you if, if you look at the the five thirty eight predictions, um, Manchester City eighty seven percent on to win the Premier League, Arsenal thirteen percent to win the Premier League. When it comes to to qualify for the Champions League, Newcastle are ninety two percent on, um, Man United seventy eight percent on, and Liverpool twenty nine percent. So, as I said, it's just it's just a chance. It's not even a coin flip yet, but it's a chance. Not yet, but in my role as you know, Mister Optimistic, rabble rouse cheerleader, 
I will point out a few things. One, I love the fact that Newcastle are talking about us, by the way. And fair enough, he might have been asked a question, but it's his podcast, so he can choose to answer it or not. Yeah. And though I like the fact that they're thinking about it because, as I said, if this was in many other teams, if this was a Leicester, if this was even Spurs, I'm sure they wouldn't be quite as worried. But because it's us, I think they are. And also, if you look at it, there's lots of little things that are going in our way. Every, almost every little thing seems to be going in our way. Like we had a, almost a perfect weekend last weekend where they both lost and we won. And that doesn't happen very often. Yeah. And so you can look at it and say the momentum is in our favour. And the other wild card about this, which is what makes it so fascinating for me, is Chelsea. Chelsea have yeah. to play them both. And Chelsea have just finally won after a long run of losing. And Chelsea have got lots of good players, many of whom are playing for their futures and would love to score a goal at Old Trafford or, or at, at um, St. James's Park. So, yes... It is still an outside chance, but we're getting closer with every passing day. That's all I'm going to say. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, it, it is a weird one with Chelsea. I mean, United, one of United's three home games is against Chelsea. And uh, I think Newcastle have to play them away on the final day of the season. Newcastle could have it wrapped up by then. If they, if they win the two home games beforehand, but the thing is with Chelsea is obviously despite the mess that they're currently in and the position in the Premier League table, they still have a whole host of really, really, really good players. So, in terms of individuals, at least Chelsea can technically compete with anyone really. But then you've got Frank Lampard at the top of the three picking these players. <laughs> yeah, um, I'll, I'll admit it. Yeah, it's a long shot, but it's it's just nice to be in the pitches, to be honest, after sitting in 10 all season or whatever we've been. Yeah. Um, but yeah, aside from, from the pitch, uh, we, we do have other talking points to talk about around Liverpool, one of which relates to, bear with me with the pronunciation on this, <laughs> is George Schmadk. Is that, is that any, any good? George Schmadke as well. George yeah. Um, yeah. Reported to be in the frame to be Liverpool's next sporting director. I've seen the word that he is coming in for three months. I've seen the word that he's coming in for one window. I've seen the word that he's coming in for three years until Klopp leaves. So God knows what it is because there's no confirmation yet. But the large majority of people, virtually everybody, when his name came out, everyone was kind of like, who? But, I mean, I'm not sure if you was the same, Mo. Have you got any awareness of who he is? I I haven't got awareness of who he is. I've got awareness of his work, though, particularly with Wolfsburg. But, I mean, that did make me laugh. Genuinely, it made me laugh when the reaction came out. Because it's like, guys, which sporting directors have we heard of 
<laughs> like very very few of them we've heard of that's kind of the point they're not people who ne necessarily um seek the spotlight they want to get behind the scenes and do their deals where people can't see them that's the whole point that's where the good ones lie and it almost seems like the ones who become more famous than the teams and the managers kind of ends up going wrong if you look at munchie and how he was fantastic at Sevilla and then disastrous at Roma and other such examples. So that side of it doesn't bother me. The interesting thing for me was all the people on the German beat and how they were talking about him being so combustible and about how he's quite grump, the grumpy man of German football, I saw it said quite a few times. And he's been known to fall out with a few people, which on the face of it, they're all kind of thinking, well, hmm, that's a bit strange. But I think, personally, could be a masterstroke for quite a few reasons. Number one, you need someone to challenge Klopp. We've been saying all along, we'd like Klopp having maybe the final say, but so much influence can be bad. So we need someone to challenge him at times because there are times when he's not always right. And even though he admits it openly himself, Everyone needs to be reminded of that every now and then, I think. So he's someone who does that. Michael Edwards used to do that. So that's good. The other thing is, the other thing we were fearing about is how his influence over transfers would transfer to the dressing room. Now he's got a buffer. And a buffer who has got very good history of being the bad guy. And sometimes you need someone else to be the bad guy. And... I'm starting to sound a little bit like um, Scarface now, but bear with me. <laughs> <laughs> but like, the tr it's the truth that if you're in a contract negotiation, sometimes you need someone else to be able to stand up and say the tough things that need to be said and take all the hate that comes with it and basically not care and have that be part of the relationship. I think the idea that he's fallen out with other people, a lot of the time it's been part of the power struggle. I don't think that's going to happen here. I think everyone's going to know that Klopp is still the guy. Like, he's not going to overpower him within the Liverpool structure. He's going to be able to challenge him and create his own role, which I like. And the other place you need a bad guy is in negotiations. Think about it. How many times have we been up against teams who either have more money than us, more clout than us, or we're just up against a team that just simply doesn't want to sell their best player, despite how much we want them. We need someone to go in there and be ruthless, to be able to get the deal done, to be able to get it done at the price we want, who's not going to care necessarily about ruffling a few feathers. Now, I think this guy can do all of that. I think he's got the pedigree in terms of his years in the game to do all that. But all that said, his relationship with Klopp their chemistry, their working relationship is going to be the decider of whether this works or not. Yeah, it is a very, very interesting and curious one, I think. It seems to be a case of Klopp has picked the sporting director, which generally I would not want to happen. Um, but I understand why it would happen in this case, because it's Jürgen Klopp. He's the king of Liverpool, essentially. It's a bit of a different case considering he's been at the club for like seven years, eight years or so. So I do get it in that sense, but I'm pretty sure they've got the same agents and and things like that. So I think there's there's something in that. 
in terms of whether I was aware of him, um, yes and no. I, I, I was I was not generally, but I have read about him in the past. Um, purely in terms of his specifically peculiar scouting ways, for, for, like in, in the past, and I know he's um, he's picked up on players who he's interested in, and he sent a scout to go and watch those players live or player live. But one of the curious things he does to remove bias, or he's done in the past to remove bias, has been he doesn't actually tell the scout who the player of interest is. So he'll send them to a match, hope that the scout picks up on the same player that Schmadke has, has picked up on. And, um, you know, if not, why, and, and things like that. But <clears throat> I suppose that is a way of thinking outside yeah. the box, a bit of a peculiar approach to scouting so that's why he initially popped up on my radar a few years back um in terms of him being combustible as a character i do think it it, it is i'm not too concerned about that in terms of the public stuff because in germany the sporting director is the face the sporting director deals with all the media stuff whereas in england the manager is the all-seeing power character and the, the manager will be talking about basically departments that he shouldn't know anything about. Um, and that's not the case in other countries. So I think a lot of Schmadke's public disputes have came with when he's been basically asked a question about a result or something like that. And he's basically said, like, my coach is not good enough or something like that. Whereas yeah. in England, he's, he's just not going to get asked anything. He's going he's gonna to stay behind the scenes. Well, um, I wonder about that. Because I do think there's a certain element of Klopp not really enjoying having to answer all of those questions and would actually kind of like it if someone else has came in and put in front of a microphone every now and then. Obviously, he wouldn't want him to throw himself under the bus, but I do think that well, I wouldn't be surprised if that is a part of his remit coming in, is to be yeah. just a bit of a deflector <laughs> for some of the stuff that Klopp does, really doesn't want to have to deal with and doesn't want to have the brain space to think about. Yeah, he also has a, a, a UEFA Pro license, which I think is interesting. I think generally, I might be wrong in saying this, but I feel like sporting directors generally don't have that. Maybe I don't think Michael Edwards did. I think he's been a coach as well. Yeah, he has. I, I don't think he's had, spent any major time as a coach, but I do think he's coached in the past. He was a goalkeeping coach at one point. I think he managed. Um, Aachen, is it in the German mm-hmm. Bundesliga or the or the league below that potentially? Um, so he does he does have some yeah Aachen yeah sorry he does have <laughs> some experience in in that role um which is which is interesting um but yeah I think it's an interesting one because I I think this does kind of capture how Liverpool's recruitments whether they deny it or not is kind of changing a little bit because I I. One of the major things that I've been looking for with with, with Schmadker is, is is whether he is a data guy, essentially. Mm-hmm. Is he a man for the numbers? Is he a Michael Edwards? Is he a Damien Kamolg? Is he a Fenway Sports Group type appointment? And from what I've seen, he's not. Uh, I haven't seen anything associated with his name that suggests that he's a man who's going to use Will Spearman and you know Ian Graham before, even though Ian Graham's not really, probably not going to meet him. Um, so that does kind of suggest I don't know how how 
how much that will mm. how much of a part the numbers will play in, in recruitment moving forward obviously we've heard rumors that Linders is a bit more of a prominent figure we're getting linked to players in the Premier League which everybody knows we're getting linked to some players in Portugal Linders has contacts there um you know so I don't know it's it's an system of I what I would say though is it evidence that says that he's actively said that he doesn't like data or that there's no evidence that he's actively jumped on it because lack of evidence does not necessarily mean lack of interest it could just mean it's not out there also he like we said he's coming into a club where there are certain parts of the structure that's already set we've literally just appointed will spearman to a new lead role i think if he's coming in it will be largely um encouraged i think to say to work with this new department that's been actually really good for the club over the last few years so whether he how he goes about that how receptive he is to that might also decide how good he is but it might also decide how long he's in the job because that's the other thing isn't it is that even the maximum that we've heard of the rumors so far is a three-year deal which is to the end at the same time as clubs so what the club is essentially saying is that if this doesn't work then when we change the manager we're going to change that too we're going to look for a whole new structure maybe one that's a little bit more allied to what they're specifically been asking for so as much as there are potential uh there's potential for it to go wrong as there is with every deal in this nature i do think that there are potentially fail safes for that as well the blood red podcast from the liverpool echo Yeah, well, I'm curious whether he's he would actually come in as a sporting director in the mould of what Edwards did, for example, in terms of overseeing so many different departments. I'm, I'm I'm wondering if the idea is for him to just come in and essentially do the transfer stuff and the negotiation stuff, dealing with agents and things like that. Klopp's never been particularly keen on that sort of thing, and obviously with Julian Ward leaving, that would be Klopp's responsibility, which is not ideal because he's already got. He's already spinning so many plates. So maybe it wouldn't be the all-seeing sporting director role that we have seen before. Mm. Um, but even dealing with transfers and offering an opinion on that sort of thing, I, I just would... I did like... I have always liked Liverpool's um, willingness to embrace the data and, and, and use that to find an edge. And he might be a data guy behind the scenes, I don't know. But based on what I've seen, it doesn't look really like he is. He is 59 as well, to be fair yeah. to him. And if you well, think about someone who's been in the game for that long, you know, like, it, it, it's difficult. Like, if you think of Edwards, very youthful, progressive. Julian Ward's pretty young as well when it comes to that sort of stuff. Camoli, even Theo Epstein in Boston. Mm-hmm. It's kind of young, progressive people, isn't it? Well, yes and no. Because you have to remember, one of the earliest takers up of all of this in England was Sam Allardyce. Like, he was one of the pioneers in terms of a manager who actually encouraged his people to find data and to use data and to share it with the players as well, almost as a way as an encouragement, but also a way of telling them, look, you're not cutting the standards. So it really does depend on the person a lot of the time. You can't really always say that. One thing I'd say is in his favour as well, this most high-profile mistake, which is basically not show seeing the faith in Victor Osimhen when he was at Wolfsburg, he let him go on loan to Charleroi 
and he exploded. Um, he's already said that he's learned from that. And basically he said that, that as a club, you never want to be part of something like that. But the most important lesson is you have to be patient with some transfers. You can't say we'll sign you up, uh, give you all the things. And then if it doesn't work, we're going to dump you straight away. So it does look like he's got an ability to take on new information, learn from things that have gone wrong, which again is kind of what you want. We have to wait and see, I think. Yeah, well, he, he does <clears throat> He does have some success behind him, to be fair, not in terms of specifically silverware and things like that. He's operated at a bit of a lower level on that. But he has kind of basically improved teams wherever he's been, really. That's one That's one thing that definitely is attached to his name. And I think his, his last job at Wolfsburg, I think, is particularly interesting because he did kind of transform Wolfsburg um, and... During their best season under him, I'm trying to find when it was, it might have been um, 2020-21, but whenever it was, Oliver Glasner was the coach, and for those who aren't aware, Oliver Glasner is kind of like a, a Klopp type in the sense that he's he's big on the high pressing and the, the risk taking and all that sort of stuff, very, very Bundesliga to be honest, um, but he delivered a team with Glasner that was suited to the whole high-pressing game. I think he brought in Riddle Bahu, who is yeah. a full-back, very mobile, very, very energetic and, and fast and stuff. Brought in Maxence Lacroix as a centre-half, who is, again, lots of potential, very well-rounded. I think a few years back, Dave mentioned him yeah. on the podcast, Dave Hughes, when we were doing scouting picks. Um, and I remember checking at the time, because I was, I was just generally interested in, in Wolfsburg at the time because of what they were doing and they, they they were I think they finished about fourth on the table but I think in terms of shots faced they averaged the fewest in the Bundesliga I think at the time unless I'm getting mistaken no like, no that's right yeah. Facing, yeah facing fewer shots than than even Bayern Munich but so so it was a it was a very effective kind of relationship that they had and, they, and, they, and he did deliver a kind of pressing unit team which you could just you could kind of associate with, obviously Liverpool in terms of a similar identity, if you like. Um, but I suppose at Liverpool, one of the issues is compared to what he's previously done, you're suddenly dealing with a much higher caliber of player. And if he picks out a, I don't know, a Maxence Lacroix, who is a a really good centre half, he's a really good centre half for Wolfsburg, but. If you'd have picked, if you'd have identified his potential at the time, and took him to Liverpool back then, I'm not sure he's Liverpool level. So mm-hmm. you you have to be conscious of the step up in standard, and sometimes that does result in you just buying the obvious player who everybody knows. But that's the level you have to deliver anyway. So I hope <clears> he's not like a. Say for example, the scouting example I use, where you're sending someone to a, a stadium without telling them who he's scouting. I mean, you can't really do that with Liverpool targets. You're probably going to know who who those players are, that kind of thing. So I hope he, had, I hope he's able to adapt in that sense. Is what I'm yeah. Saying. Again, I feel like that one thing might have been the thing that made the article, but I'm sure he's got other ways than that. <laughs> and also, someone who's genuinely been in the game that long, recruitment, scouting, well, he's going to know what players are good for certain levels in terms of finances. But essentially, 
if you're looking for a player with X, Y, Z qualities, then you should be able to scout them with whatever level you're looking at. A good player who can do things is a good player who can do things. And I think once you got used to being able to identify that part of it, the rest of it with the experience he's had down the years, he should be able to deal with it. I'm not saying it's not not definitely not going to be a problem, but I'm saying he should be able to deal with it. I think the more interesting part is when he's dealing with maybe the other sporting directors of some of the bigger clubs, the Barcelonas, the Real Madrids, the Bayern Munichs, etc. Because with the exception of Bayern, that's probably something that he hasn't done. So he's going to have relationships. They're going to know who he is. But how he deals with them, I think is going to be fascinating as well. Yeah, it's a, it's definitely one to keep an eye on. It's it's an insistent talking point, definitely. And um, it's hard to really offer an opinion on what you overly think of it because we, we know so little about him. What I do think is I, I do trust Klopp to, to make the right decision. But I also think... Obviously, people being challenged at the top of the organisation is healthy and I hope that this kind of thing fosters that within reason. Like I think one of the reasons potentially that Julian Ward's getting off is because there's too much of that, is what I've heard. <laughs> but, you know, we're not going to that. But, um, yeah, it's an interesting one to keep an eye on. Obviously, Liverpool need a sporting director ahead of a huge summer. And um, if you talk about the, the signs Liverpool are potentially exploring, one of the interesting things I, I, I tweeted this the other day is Liverpool seem to be chasing number eight primarily. And that suggests that Fabinho's place in the team is relatively safe considering we're getting linked with Gravenberg, McAllister, Mount, Matthias Nunes. These are all eights. And if you look at Liverpool's current system, even Liverpool's previous system, none of those players are six. So... No. Some of them potentially could play as a double six, I suppose. McAllister's played as a double six this season. Gravenberg's done it, I think. But the links kind of suggest Fabinho is, is safe. What have you made of Fabinho in the past two months in terms of Liverpool's six wins in a row? Well, I mean, the first point that's important to note is that he started them all. And yeah. in fact, he's actually on a run of 13 consecutive starts in um, Premier League and the Champions League, which was actually quite shocking to me when I looked it up, because I felt like for a while that he's at his best when he's managed a little bit. And I was going to say, is that part of the problem? (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, obviously, if Stefan Bajsetic was around, he probably wouldn't have started all those games. But the fact that he has and he's been able to well, it's difficult. I think, like I said previously about Liverpool in general against Brentford, where you could pinpoint the moment when the tiredness hit and it wasn't quite as sharp and we were having to play slightly differently. I think you can say that about Fabinho literally every single game. There is, you'll always, if you watch, if you watch any Liverpool game when he's playing and you watch the whole game and you watch him the whole time, there'll be a moment where if you look back at it, you'll be like, okay, that's where he got tired. And he starts to run a little bit slower. He starts to, his head will drop when he's run. He's looking around a little bit slower. His passes aren't quite as crisp. Everything's just a little bit. And he doesn't trust himself in the same way. So he starts compromising on certain things, positions, and it has a, a knock-on effect 
everyone else starts playing a little bit more safe, a little bit slower. And so then the opponents start to maybe get a little bit more uh, attack and a bit more threat than they had previously, which we've seen a lot towards the end of games. So for the most part, you can say that he is still capable to be part of a successful team. I just think his usage rate next season is going to have to dramatically drop. That's the only way it's going to work for me. Yeah, I do, I do think there's an element of risk attached to going a game with him because he has shown that he's tired and that he's in some ways past it. Um, but at the same time, I can see why Liverpool will prioritise eight because what that would allow Klopp to do next season <clears throat> is if we get in, say, for example, three number eights, and we couple those with Curtis Jones and Harvey Elliott, who, in my opinion, specifically in this system that we're doing lately, are very well suited to it. Yeah. That that could allow for Jordan Henderson, Stefan Bersetic and Fabinho to essentially take turns as the six. Uh, Henderson comes away from the number eight role, which is essentially a number 10 at the minute, and we know Henderson's not a 10. And Henderson kind of maybe experiences the twilight of his career as more of a hold and sit and presence rather than a player who's covering ridiculous ground and running himself into the floor and yeah. occupying the final third in tight spaces, which has never really been his game. So I don't have too much of a problem with that. I do think Henderson has to be gradually, not necessarily phased out, but I do think he has to become a Milner in the sense that we bring him, we, we involve him when he's needed and, but in terms of him being a regular starter, we do think Liverpool need to eventually move past that. And we've got a bit of mind, he's 32. So getting in number eight and moving Henderson back toward being a six at times would give him a better platform to do what he's good at. It'd give Fabinho a rest. And Bessetich can come in and kind of learn the role from the pair of them. And hopefully when they're both kind of gone, Bessetich then is maybe around 21 or so. Um, and maybe he's kind of stepping up to be this this really elite number six potentially in the future. Um so it's it's interesting to determine what what's gonna happen with, with Liverpool's midfield. But it does look like Fabinho is, is gonna go again. And as I said, it it is a bit of a risk, but considering we technically have three players, four of you include Thiago, maybe it, 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 that's how Klopp's gonna do next season. I think that's probably I can see that working. Well, I can see a world where that's the plan. The thing I wonder about it, though, hearing that is how receptive is Henderson going to be to becoming a <laughs> Milner? I feel like there's something that he's been kind of resisting for pretty much the last two years. And he well, should know that there's going to come a time when Klopp's going to put his hand on his shoulder and be like, it's time. And obviously, Milner leaving feels like the right time. But Henderson is nothing if not proud and determined and to prove people wrong, much like Milner was. So I wonder whether or not it's going to be an easy transition. I'm not sure he enjoys the six as much. And if you look at his games recently, when he's been at his best, it is when he's still harrying midfielders and winning the ball back. And I don't know whether or not that's going to be quite the remit if he's purely the six. It might just be more of a shuttling, positioning, and maybe just finding the right pass at the right time kind of role which I don't know. Maybe he will be able to make it his own. Who knows? Maybe he'll just know that that's the only way he gets to stay in the team. 
but my my instincts deep down tells me that it's not going to be an easy conversation. <laughs> yeah, well, I I can't see him ever going down like a Cristiano Ronaldo route in the sense oh. that he just refuses to accept that he's forty eight. But <laughs> it, 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 <laughs> but he is going to be thirty three at the start of next season, yeah. and despite that, we still have another two seasons of him in terms of his his contract situation. At least if he's going to have, if he is going to leave on a free. We've got another two seasons at Henderson. I, I hope that he doesn't expect to continue being a starter for the rest of his Liverpool career. Milner, despite being the ultimate professional who is super driven and all that stuff, seemed to get to a point in his career where he did willingly accept the role that he had to play as a, a kind of vocal leader who's responsible for certain standards and can reinforce the identity at times and and things like that. I'm not sure how old Milner was when he kind of became that kind of player for Liverpool. But Henderson is going to have to come to terms with that. And the better he thinks he is and, and, and the, 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 how capable he thinks he still is will determine whether he thinks he's ready for that kind of uh, backseat role, if you, if, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and I mean... Obviously, his role as captain is to do everything for the good of the team. And that's something that he's been very good at throughout his career. He's always been a team guy. So you can look at it and say that, no, he shouldn't have a problem with it. But at the same time, I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? Like in terms of whoever comes in, he's going to want to still be influential. He still needs to be seen as an authority figure to the new players coming into the into the dressing room as captain. And maybe that's harder for him to do if he's not starting games regularly. We'll have to wait and see. But yeah, he's um, very emotionally intelligent, is Henderson. So I trust him to kind of navigate it. One of the things I did see, actually, which I thought was interesting, was I can't remember who said it to you. It might have even been you, to be honest, Mo. But in terms of this kind of inverted fullback role that Trent is currently showcasing, um, it's, Trent is going to need a rest. Eventually, not this season, which is why we're getting away with it. We've only got one game a week at the minute. But next season, if we're going to do this on a regular basis in different competitions and things like that, Trent can't play, I don't know, 50, 60 games a season. Um, and I think if you think of the players who could do that in Liverpool's squad right now, Milner could probably do bits of it because of his versatility. Milner's leaving in the summer. But I actually think if you think about it, I, I I think Henderson could potentially give that a go. Um, that'd be another way for him to kind of get minutes and, and starts mm. every now and then when Trent needs a break. I think Henderson as a as an inverted fullback slash double six could be an interesting one to explore that one. I don't know if I'm just getting a bit galaxy brain. Or... <laughs> I mean, it's it's probably something that they are is under consideration for sure because he has early on in his career played as a, a right back. He is played down that right-hand side traditionally for Liverpool. And he spent a lot of time covering for Trent when he was running up the field. So he knows kind of the instincts around that. So you can see a world again. You can see where it works. It's just, I mean, what again, I'm not sure how fun that would be for Henson. But <clears throat> if again, if you sell it to him in a way that, you know, it's part of the new evolution of the team, then maybe you can sell it to him. I don't know. I think, obviously... He is still a good passer of the football at his best. 
he has kind of wavered a little bit on that over the course of this season. So that would have to be back at his best if he's playing that role. But again, it's something we can investigate. We're going to have to wait until we get to the end of the transfer window and see who we have and who we don't have. And I think work out what the conversation is going to be from there. Yeah, no, I think it's a good show. Uh, I think we will we will round up there. To be honest, I think it's it's been a relatively slow week, but mm. I think the the sport and director news is probably the headline. Um, but yeah, hopefully next week there's a bit more going on. Hopefully Liverpool is still winning, or more importantly, um, and hopefully Man United and Newcastle have both lost by about four goals to nil. <laughs> <laughs> but Mo, thanks for joining us as always, mate. Always a pleasure. Thanks, man. And uh, we will see you next week. You've been listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.